0: How are you guys this morning? Good. All right. I like when uh, I ask questions at the beginning and people respond. That makes me feel like you're awake, so thank you for that. Um, like Stephen said, I'm a pastoral resident up in Tempe. Uh, it's really a great uh, privilege and opportunity to be able to come down here and share with you guys this morning. Uh, One of my first experiences as a resident was coming down with a group of guys when um, Dave had everyone meet in his backyard and talk about um, how you guys were joining Redemption Church, and that was a really cool experience, so it's kind of cool to come back full circle, and here we are, and have this opportunity, and I'm excited to dive into the Word of God with you guys today. So, um, before we get started, you guys, you guys heard the passage, and one of the things that I want to start with is, is a word of caution, right? Because Jesus says some pretty significant things here in this passage, and we can see just from the initial reading that, number one, the Pharisees don't get it, the scribes don't get it, the crowds don't get it, and Jesus' disciples don't get it. Right, All of these people think that they understand what's going on. They think that they're good. So as we approach this passage today, I would just like to take a minute to pray and ask God that he would give us eyes to see and ears to hear what he's communicating to us. Will you guys pray with me? God, thank you for today. We thank you for your word that confronts things that uh, we hold dear, that confronts things that are uncomfortable to us. We thank you for your truth and your love and your grace. We thank you that your spirit has been moving in every single person's life um, today and previously throughout the history. We thank you for the ways that you'll move um, today and that for the ways that your spirit will move uh, in our futures, God. We thank you that we can trust you, um, that you love us, uh, and that you desire our hearts. Help us to love you more, Lord. Help us to love each other more. We pray these things in your name. Amen. So... We have this passage today that talks about sin, and when I think about coming to a church I don't really know about and preaching about sin, I'm like, Dave, I see what you're doing here. You're not even in the state right now, and you're leaving this on me, so uh, we're going we're gonna to stick to what God says in his word, and we're going to walk through verse by verse and then um, make some connections kind of at the end, so that's where we're going, Okay. You have your Bibles, we're starting in chapter 7, verse 1. It says, Now when the Pharisees gathered to him, him being Jesus, with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. So Mark's setting the scene here. We have Pharisees who were religious leaders. We have scribes. Some of the scribes were actually Pharisees. They would copy out the word of God. And there was a whole set of rules and requirements that surrounded what they did. And they've come down from Jerusalem. Jerusalem is like the head religious authority of the time. See, they've heard all of these things that Jesus has done. They know about the feeding of the 5,000. They know about Jesus walking on water. Jesus casting out unclean spirits. Jesus healing people. Jesus teaching about the kingdom of God. And this has reached the ears of the religious authorities, the religious leaders. And so they've sent people down to question Jesus, to spy on what he's done, to see if he's falling in line with what the scriptures say. They're really there to to ask a question and hopefully, hopefully find an answer. Who is this Jesus? This is the question that Mark has been laying out since he started his book. Who is Jesus? What is Jesus here for? A couple weeks ago, Herod asked this question, and he thought, well, maybe Jesus is John the Baptist raised from the dead. People are struggling with this identity of Jesus. Really, up until this point, the only characters in Mark that understand who Jesus is are the demons. They're the only ones who know that he is the son of God. Everyone else is fumbling around trying to figure this thing out. And so we have these religious leaders that come down trying to decipher who is Jesus, and they are appalled. They cannot believe what they're seeing. Because Jesus' disciples will eat without washing their hands. And now this isn't a matter of hygiene, like you were out in the fields and there's some dirt under your fingernails, you should probably wash your hands before you eat. This is a matter of tradition, of, of ritual of cleanliness and uncleanliness in a spiritual sense. And so what the Pharisees have done is they have established rules upon rules to try to protect the holiness or the sanctity of the nation of Israel. You see, in in Israel's history, God has established a covenant with them. And God says, if you follow these rules, it will go well for you. And if not, there will be some consequences. And the nation of Israel did not always follow God's rules, and God gave them prophets who issued warning after warning and encouraged the people of Israel, you've got to follow what God says. We have to live life as God intended, as he designed it to be. But the people were stubborn and rebellious, a lot like us, and they did what they wanted. And so there were natural consequences. Other nations came in and invaded the land. They carried their um, youngest and best and brightest off into exile, into Babylon. And once God restored Israel back to their home, the Pharisees and other religious leaders rose up and, and realized what the consequences of the sin of Israel were, how it affected their community, and decided, we do not want this. But rather than trusting in what God had established, they set up their own rules, they set up layer upon layer upon layer of requirement and obligation and duty now these started as something good they based these rules on god's law what god had established their motivation was purity was trying to walk according to the ways that god had said were best for the nation but they built upon that they added extra requirements so these Regulations about hand washing. And uh, as the passage goes on, it says that uh, in verse three, for the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands, holding to the tradition of the elders, not the tradition of God. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. Now, God had established these laws for a specific group of people within the nation of Israel. He established these laws for the priests to observe only at a certain time, only for certain celebrations or or, um, holidays within the Jewish calendar. Now, the Pharisees said, if a little bit is good, then more is better. And so if the priests should wash their hands like this one day a year, now we decide that everyone should wash their hands like this before every single meal. They're adding to what God has established. There's um, a story of a rabbi who starved to death, not because he didn't have food, but because he didn't have access to water to wash his hands in this ritualized way. And this story was a scene. They looked at this rabbi as a great spiritual holy man. They missed the intention of the law for the letter of the law. God desires life, right? Life in abundance. Not starvation because we can't wash our hands in the right way. And think about the context here. Right? like we think about washing our hands we can go to the bathroom wash our hands there's the hand sanitizer stations everywhere we go because we're obsessed with these things right? but in the nation of Israel there wasn't plumbing they didn't have this access to clean water to running water this was a burden that the traditions of men that the Pharisees, the religious leaders had placed upon the people it was weight here the people knew that they were unclean We know that we are unclean. We feel that weight. And to add extra weight on top of that, extra expectations, extra performance, extra duties, Jesus does not respond kindly to the Pharisees because of this. In verse 6, sorry, in verse 5, the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, asking Jesus, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? So Jesus knows what's going on. He knows why they've come to question him. And then they ask him this trick question, right? There's no right answer here. Because either Jesus says, well, we don't follow the traditions of your elders, and they become upset. Or he says, well, we do, knowing that They don't follow those traditions, and the Pharisees become upset. So we did this in elementary school, right? We would ask each other, like, does your mom know you're a dork? And if they said yes, it's like, ah, you're a dork. And if they said no, then, oh, you should tell her, right? But here, Jesus is above playground games. He sees what's going on. He sees through it, and like Jesus always does, he gets to the heart of the issue. Jesus says this, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. As it is written, this people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Jesus calls the Pharisees hypocrites here. The the translation is stage actors. People that are more concerned with the outside appearance with the performance that they are displaying for everyone else to see than what's going on internally. It says on the outside, you look like you're following God, like you're worshiping God, but internally, you're dead. You have no clue what you're doing. There's there's frustration in Jesus' voice. He says in verse 8, you leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. There's an escalation here, right? Jesus starts by calling them hypocrites, Now he's saying they're leaving the commandments of God. For people that are religious, these are fighting words. Jesus is not being subtle here, right? This isn't like the Sunday school picture of Jesus in like meadows with sandals and long hair and lambs, right? That's not the picture of Jesus that we're seeing here. This is like feisty Jesus. This is Jesus like getting after people because this is something that's close to his heart. This is why he's come he's he's come for life he's not come for guilt he said to them in verse 9 you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of god in order to establish your tradition and he goes on to give an example for moses said honor your father and your mother and whoever reviles father and mother must surely die But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you would have gained from me is korban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. So he's gone from calling them hypocrites, to leaving the commandments of God, to making void the word of God. He's saying what Moses has said, the man who led Israel out of Egypt and into the promised land, the man who God communicated with directly, giving God's law to his people, one of the founding fathers of the religion, of the faith. Moses said this, but you contradict Moses. This man that you say you devote your life to, you stand in stark contradiction of. The Pharisees are not happy, but neither is Jesus. Because Jesus sees through the heart of this, he knows that this is not something new. This adding of rules and expectations onto what God has already said. This lack of trust in what God has spoken to his people is not a new concept. Think back with me all the way to the beginning of the story. All the way back to the Garden of Eden. We see God create the world and and create everything in it and create man and woman and declare everything good. And we see God give the first commandment. He says, You may surely eat from any tree in the garden, but if you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. It's the first commandment. And when most of us hear that, we hear the first commandment as the negative, right? Don't eat from that tree. Instead of the positive, of you are free to eat from any tree in the garden. We focus on the negative. And, and then the snake comes in, right? The serpent comes into the story and starts talking to Adam and Eve. Uh, we read the Jesus Storybook Bible with, with our sons every night. And when the snake comes, my oldest son, he's he that snake, that rotten old snake, right? The rotten old snake comes and he speaks to Eve. And he said, Did God really say? You can't eat from any tree in the garden? This concept of adding rules to what God has said is not new. It was the first thing the snake said. Did God say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? No, God said they could eat from any tree, they could enjoy the fruit of every tree that God has created except the one. And the woman replies, well, no, God didn't really say that. He said we can't eat from the one tree, and we can't touch it. And now she's adding rules to what God said, because God never said they can't touch it. He just said they can't eat it. It was at that moment that the woman decided to eat of the tree. And the man did also. And sin entered into the world. Their hearts were changed. Their eyes were open. And nothing has been right since. Things are not the way that they should be. And so Jesus remembers that. Jesus remembers the outcome of adding rules onto what God has already said. And we see him get feisty here. We see him challenge what these Pharisees have been leading the people of Israel to do. These expectations that they've been placing upon them. He calls the people together. And he speaks to them. He says, hear me. All of you, and understand there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus, he declared all foods clean. This is what Jesus is in the business of doing. Since Jesus has come on the scene, he is in the business of cleansing things, of declaring things clean or restored or healed. Jesus has has exercised unclean spirits from people and and cleansed the individual. Jesus has gone into Gentile lands, unclean lands, and performed miracles there, cleansing and um, exposing the kingdom of God to them. Jesus has healed unclean people, right? Remember the woman who had been bleeding for 12 years? Jesus cleanses her. Um, The the dead daughter, who would be unclean for Jesus to touch, Jesus goes in and touches her and brings her back to life and, and cleanses this unclean body, this unclean place. That's what Jesus does. And now he has declared all foods clean. He says that whatever we can put into ourselves, that it's, that's not what defiles us, but rather it's what comes out of us. He, he's standing in stark opposition to what the Pharisees have said, saying it's not these, these outward circumstances that you may find yourselves in which cause sin. It's an internal condition. It, it's something much deeper than whether we've washed our hands in the correct way. It's something much deeper than the foods we choose to eat or not eat. Jesus lists uh, sins that come out of a person in in, in verse 20. He he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from, from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, Sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within. And they defile a person. Jesus is saying something very significant here. He's saying that the issue is not outside. The issue is inside. The issue is us. We know this. Because we know our hearts, right? I I know this because I'm a dad, and I have two boys. And at no point in my parenting did my wife or I ever decide to say, hey, you know what you should do if you're in trouble? You should lie about it. We never said that, but they know it. I I never told my oldest son, hey, you know what would be really cool? Don't share toys with your brother, No, we have worked hard to say, dude, you got to share. There's always enough when we share. But he doesn't want to share. They hit each other. We never taught them that. I promise. But they know it. They lean in that direction. We all do. And we know these things. We know what's in our hearts. We hear those voices when we lay our heads on our pillows at night and have trouble falling asleep. Because of what we did or what we said or what we didn't do or say. We know the weight of that guilt. We know what it feels like to feel defiled. And if we don't know, then Jesus starts a list, right? Like if any of us think that we're above this, then he starts this list, which begins with evil thoughts. Because none of us would ever have evil thoughts, right? Even in church on Sunday morning, We still struggle with evil thoughts. It's interesting that he starts with evil thoughts and he ends the list with foolishness or lack of thought. We can see how sin starts as an idea and full grown brings us to destruction. That starts with us. It starts inside us. The Pharisees didn't trust that God's word would keep them close to God. So they, they added things. They, they added rules to try to manufacture their, their holiness, their acceptance. And we can see the same train of thought in this list. We see that Jesus calls out evil thoughts, this distrust of what, in what God says is good to think about. We, we distrust God in this, and so we start thinking about things that he says are not good. Sexual immorality, we have a distrust in how God established intimacy and what he says is right and good in relationships. There's theft. There's a distrust in God's provision of material blessings, and so we go on our own to try to obtain things because we don't trust that God will take care of us. Murder. There's a distrust in God to avenge, to judge, to carry out justice, so we take these things in our own hands. Adultery, a distrust in the spouse that God has provided is adequate to meet our our needs and who we are created to be. Coveting, this distrust in God's provision, and more than that, it's a hate for those people that have those things. Um, Wickedness, a distrust in how God says we ought to live, so we make our own way. Deceit, we're distrusting God's sovereignty and his right judgment. So we lie, we cover things up, we manipulate situations, we fabricate things. Uh, Sensuality, there's a distrust in God's goodness. And so we look to escape our reality through whatever feels good to us. Substances, food, mental escapes, whatever that may be. Envy, we're distrusting that God created us unique and wonderfully made, and so we wish we were someone else. We don't believe that classic saying, right, God don't make junk. And so we think that we should be someone else. Slander, we're distrusting that we have worth and value in God's eyes, and so we tear down fellow image bearers. Pride, we distrust God to be God. And so we take that role for him and from him. We say that we know what's best. We know how to cleanse ourselves. We know how to unshoulder these heavy burdens that we have been carrying. And so we make our own way. We make our own rules. We add rules or take rules away from what God has said. And we establish our own authority. And then finally, foolishness. We... We distrust everything that God has done, has said, has created. And basically, Jesus is saying, we lose our minds. We follow our own ways. We do what we want, when we want, and how we want. We don't care about how those decisions affect ourselves, affect those around us, or affect our community. And the hard news of this is that it comes from us. We may not all struggle with the same things. Um, I've, I've never murdered anyone, but I've definitely had my share of evil thoughts. And, and we, have to, we have to admit that we're all made of the same stuff. We all have the same potential. Uh, there's a story um, after World War II uh, during the trials at, at Nuremberg, and, and one of the survivors of the concentration camp came in um, to, to uh, be a witness against one of the men who ran a concentration camp uh, in, in which they were housed. And, and this person just wept, and wept, and wept, and wept. And, and everyone assumed that it was they were reliving the horrors, they couldn't believe what had happened, and, and this is triggering memories and all of these things. And, and at the end, she said, no. I realized that that guy's just a man, just like me. And I have the same potential within my heart to carry out those evil things that he did. That's the reality. This is bad news. We're all made of the same stuff. We all have the same propensity towards sin. We all carry the same feelings of weight and burden with these bad choices that we've made. And we can't blame anyone other than ourselves because we all do it from the time we're young. And this is what the Pharisees were getting at. They're saying we're defiled. Going back to the beginning, that our hands are unclean. And so if we touch this bread, then this bread becomes defiled. And as we consume it, we're even more unclean. We're an unclean people. And God will punish us. And they're partially right. This this sin is heavy. It's weighty. It's it's all-encompassing. Charles Spurgeon has a quote that describes this. He says, Sin is not a splash of mud upon a man's exterior. It is a filth generated within himself. They understood the filth. They were just a little bit off in, its, um, in where it came from, where it comes from. It, it, it's not just something bad that I've done, a splash of mud. It's not just something that if I try harder, I can correct that and it's all good. It's still, that's generated within ourselves. But the message of Jesus, Jesus is different than the message of the Pharisees. The Pharisees assumed that defiled hands would contaminate bread and that would defile our hearts. But Jesus, Jesus lived out something different. In the book of John, Jesus calls himself the bread of life. And if we follow out this logic, what Jesus says is, you're right. Your hands are defiled. And when you touch the bread of life, that defilement passes. The bread of life absorbs your defilement. It absorbs your filth. It absorbs the weight and burden of the poor decisions that you've made. And as we consume the bread of life or as we put our hope and trust in Jesus, then he regenerates our hearts. He creates a new heart within us. He doesn't, like, wash the exterior. He doesn't try to wash the mud off the surface. But he creates a new heart. The Holy Spirit comes in and indwells us. And that's where there's hope in the midst of this bad news. That's where we can see new life. That's where we can begin to unshoulder these heavy burdens that we carry. Because Jesus lived a sinless life, a perfect life. He fulfilled the law. He realized in that perfection, he didn't need to add on to what God had said. He didn't need to try to um, perform rituals and traditions and rites. He loved God and he loved people perfectly. And he invites us into that. Knowing that the fill comes from within. Knowing that it's not just some um, external choices that we make once in a while, but a continual Struggle. He invites us into his perfection. He invites us into his cleanness. And he cleanses us from within. And from this new heart that's fallen so in love with Jesus, we begin to see the fruit of the Spirit. We begin to see love and joy and peace and patience and all of these things that if you were in Sunday school, you've memorized. There's a transformation And we follow God's law, not out of duty and obligation because we fear that we'll be sent into exile, but out of love. Out of a genuine desire to walk closely with him. When my wife and I were dating, nobody had to tell me, like, hey, you should spend time with her. I didn't feel forced to, like, go to the movies with her and hold her hand or any of those things. I really like her. I really enjoy spending time with her, especially when we get to come down here without our kids. It's a motivation of love and desire. It's not a motivation of duty and and obligation. And that's what Jesus is calling us to. He's calling us to relationship. Uh, I, I have another quote by a lady named Caroline Schneider. She says this, The goodness of Jesus is an inner contagion that gives us a new birth, baptizing not our dishes, but our hearts. He shares our uncleanness and we share his cleanness. And his cleanness is stronger than our uncleanness. That is how we can now be so confident that he is with us and in us. We are clean in God's eyes. Not because we've washed our hands a certain way or we wash our utensils a certain way, or we follow traditions of men who have added layer upon layer upon layer upon layer of rules. But because of Jesus, because his contagion, I love that, right? Like Jesus is contagious when he gets inside of us. We thankfully absorb his contagion to cleanse us from the inside out. And from this new heart, we're motivated to obey Jesus gets fired up about this because this is the heart of why he came. This is why he willingly endures the cross because he knows we can't do it. He knows we lean towards sin. So he provides a way where there is no way. He provides a cleansing where we can't hope to be cleansed. He provides an opportunity for us to, to be out from underneath the weight of our defilement, the weight of those choices that we made in the past, the consequences that we still carry with us today. He absorbs our uncleanness so that we may be clean and stand right before God. Will you guys pray with me? God, we thank you. We thank you that you rescued us and we have no hope of rescue. We thank you that you cleanse us when we have no hope of cleansing, that you lift those burdens from our shoulders, that you speak life and love and forgiveness and grace into our hearts. Help us to be motivated by that and not motivated by fear. Help us to be enthralled by your love and not dutifully walking out obligations. Help us to love you more. We pray these things in your name. Amen.